Hello, everyone, and thank you for tuning in to the Sheila Zielinski Show. I'm using a different mic right now. I'm testing out a headset. I'm not sure what I think about this sound, so I will keep you posted. Hey, make sure that you bookmark SheilaZielinski.com. We're making some changes. We're organizing the spiritual boot camp training that's coming up at the end of November. I'm really excited about that. And then again in the new year, Technogeddon, my book is going to be releasing, well, I'm hoping, early part of 2021. Got some other projects on the go. Hey, make sure you become one of my patrons today. Support my work on Patreon. And it's really exciting. We've got some great perks that I'm trying to put together for November. So that's great. Hey, we've made it really easy to support the ministry. All that information is there at SheilaZielinski.com. And I really appreciate that. And I want to jump right into the show. I'm really excited to bring on my guest today. I'm so excited to have on my childhood crush. I think it was my teenage crush, actually. It is the one and only Kevin Sorbo joins me today. He really needs no introduction. Best known for his lead role in Hercules, The Legendary Journeys. He played that muscle-bound demigod in that hit. I think it ran for seven seasons. I know it became one of the highest-rated syndicated television programs in the world. Of course, Gene Roddenberry's TV series Andromeda. He's been in Christian flicks like God's Not Dead, What If... So, so many more. I call him the hunky half-god, Kevin Sorbo. I'm so excited to have you on the program today. Welcome. Well, thanks for having me on here. It's good to be here. Well, first of all, where I want to start is you did a fantastic job narrating my good friend Mark Morano's Climate Hustle 2. Everyone should watch that. That is something. I was so thrilled when you used the title of my book, Green Gospel, how the climate change hucksters, this prophetic doomsday cult, is really propagating the end is nigh scenario, this apocalyptic doomsday scenarios. Their predictions have failed for 50 years. We just get a steady diet of these green lies. It is really unbelievable, but you did a fantastic job in Climate Hustle too. You know, I really enjoyed that one. They pr- they pretty much shot most of the movie, and then they had me come in and do, um, you know, on-camera sort of uh, segue to interviews and, you know, just introduction for whatever the next uh, bit was going to be. And then I also did the narration on it as well, and uh, it was just a wonderful educational journey for me as well. I mean, I've never been a full proponent of believing in this whole climate change thing because I've heard and seen too many other things on the other side of the issue. And unfortunately, the you know, there's only one side that gets the biggest voice here. So I'm hoping people will take a chance and look at this thing and go, oh, okay, this is interesting. Maybe the science goes the other way just as easy as it goes the other way people want to make you believe. So, you know, look at both sides and decide for yourself. But don't always just listen to one side. I mean, I sit there and, you know, I have, I have great conversations with people about this. I mean, within Hollywood, forget about it. I mean, they're, they're just bought on one side and they, they deal mostly with anger when they talk about the issue. Why, why do we get angry? Look, I'm all for a green world. I'm all for being safe in this world. America uh, and Canada as well, we, we're very good at recycling and, you know, the use of electric cars and the preservation of our forests, et cetera, et cetera. The biggest abuses of climate out there are China and India. And that's just fact. But to sit there and attack, especially America as often as they get attacked, they're one of the lowest people out there in, in putting things up. Were they bad at one time? Certainly they were. But, they, you know, with all the regulations and all these different sort of, you know, stipulations put in place, uh, America become a pretty clean place overall. And, you know, the tree huggers out there, hey, you know, wake up call. There's more trees in North America now than there was 100 years ago. 
<laughs> yeah, very well said. Now, as far as acting goes now, you wanted to do it at a pretty young age, it seems like. You grew up in Minnesota, and you had a pretty steady run of successes and got a lot of work you pretty much knew from a young age what you wanted to do so tell the listeners a little bit about how you got into acting and how that all sort of culminated i grew up in a little town about 25 miles west of minneapolis it's on the shores of uh, lake the western shores of lake minnetonka lake minnetonka is made up about like a, a dozen different bays they're all connected by little channels Beautiful place, beautiful summertime. I don't miss the five months of winter. You guys can have that. Minnesota is probably our most Canadian state with hockey. Everybody played hockey, but me, I played basketball. <laughs> I wanted to stay indoors. But um, I'm the fourth of five kids. Uh, all five of us really had different walks of life. We all had interest in sports, but as we got through college and into our independent world, we um, all sort of just followed different careers. I was 11 years old. I made up my mind I was going to be an actor, and that's kind of where the pursuit always was. The dream always was. Certainly when I got to college, that's when I really kind of pursued it. I double major in marketing advertising, but a minor in drama. And I got sidetracked a little bit. I did travel a bit. I joined a theater group down in Dallas, Texas, and did a lot of uh, commercial work down there. Then I went to Europe to spend three months just sort of uh, with an agency in Italy doing commercial work as well and some print work. And I had three months turned into three and a half years. And then I finally get to Los Angeles at 26 to find out, okay, now I'm going to pursue that acting. Well, I booked my very first audition, a commercial I shot in Sydney, Australia, and I stayed there for over half a year filming uh, commercials and did a couple of plays while I was down there and finally made it to LA and then uh, you know got involved with all the acting classes that were the toughest ones to get into that's what I wanted to do you know people say oh don't go there it's very difficult in the class so um, yeah then then uh, three different coaches and then I uh, got my biggest break with Hercules well prior to that I was one of the lucky ones I never had to work another job I mean I, I don't know how many actors can say that going to LA if they're bartending waiting tables selling cars or doing something I worked very well commercially I, I kept uh, you know getting guest spots here and there in different shows and then my break break obviously with hercules and that brought me down to new zealand the first year was five two-hour movies that we shot for over a year before it became a series and we shot wow. six, uh, six series of one-hour episodes but uh, uh had a blast unbelievable and that led to andromeda which i shot up in vancouver for five years and since then i've shot over 60 movies i just been keeping myself busy doing mostly independent movies and uh I've got three in the can waiting to come out when the stupid COVID thing finally finishes. And uh, I just finished a new sitcom. We shot the first eight episodes here just recently and back in California. I live in Florida now, by the way. And then um, I've got a movie I leave for in a couple of weeks shooting in um, Oklahoma with uh, Dennis Quaid. So uh, I'm trying to stay busy. That's for sure. Yeah, you start alongside Dennis Quaid and Helen Hunt in Soul Surfer. That's such a, an inspiring true story about the teen surfer Bethany Hamilton who lost her arm in a shark attack while surfing. Such a wonderful show. Now, speaking of inspiring true stories, in a little bit, we're going to get into this miracle in East Texas. And I really was very impressed, by the way, with Hercules, The Legendary Journeys. Think about this for a sec, Kevin. It became one of the highest rated syndicated television programs in the world. And then, of course, 2014 saw the release of God's Not Dead. Who knew, you know, a $2 million budget sold something like $150 million, close to that? I mean, you've had some tremendous successes. Talk about that. Well, you know, it's interesting. With, with Hercules, initially, is going to be five two-hour movies. Anthony Quinn played Zeus. I got a whole year with Anthony Quinn, which was amazing. And into the third movie, before they even started airing 
you know, putting these movies out there at all. Universal Studios came back halfway through the uh, third movie and said, we love what we're seeing here. We've already seen the first two movies that have been cut together and final, final edits. We love it. We're going to make the TV series. They're going to stay down there in New Zealand. Well, by our third season on uh, Hercules, we actually passed Baywatch as the most watched TV show in the world. We're in 176 countries. Wow. Yeah, it was crazy. I mean, it was just, it was amazing to be part of something like that. And then when I went on to Andromeda, Andromeda stayed the number one show in first run syndication in America, and that made it about 150 countries around the world. And Andromeda, for people who don't know, uh, was the first show created by Gene Roddenberry after the original Star Trek series. So the captain I played, Captain Dylan Hunt, was the first captain created by Gene Roddenberry after Captain Kirk. I was a geek for Star Trek, the original series. So growing up as a kid, watching all the reruns, we used to just watch them all the time. And uh, for me to be part of that Gene Roddenberry family was quite an honor. So it's, um, you know, and since then, I've just been doing a bunch of uh, bunch of movies. And you mentioned God's Not Dead. Yeah, it was a $2 million budget, made about $140 million and still out there making money, which is just crazy. And I did another movie with him two years earlier called What If? And quite frankly, I think What If's a better movie than God's Not Dead. They just did not do a great job of uh, PR in it, you know, getting it out there. And uh, I can't blame them for it. It's tough to get independent movies out there because we're competing against the giants of Hollywood, all these big Avenger and, you know, Jurassic Park movies that they spent $300 million on. But, you know, most of the movies I do, especially the last 10 years, really are family-friendly movies, movies that have a positive message, movies that hopefully uh, have hope in there and have love and make you laugh, make you cry, make you think. And I call them actors' movies where I find, you know, you have wonderful characters that people can identify with. So many movies today, it's all about superheroes that aren't existent in the world. It's all fantasy. And, uh, you know, it's, it, I like doing movies that have real characters in them. And people can say, hey, you know what? I know people are going through that or I'm going through that myself. And uh, these are movies that uh, offer a handout to people to find a, a better road out there, no matter you know what roadblocks we're going to enter in our lives, because we're all going to hit roadblocks. How do you react to those roadblocks? So these are just fun movies to do. And like, as you mentioned, I got three other movies done. And you mentioned One Miracle in East Texas, which I directed, which can't wait to get out there because it did very well in the uh, film festival world before COVID hit. Now we're just holding on to it now because it deserves a bigger theater opening than a few theaters that are open now. Well, exactly. And I saw you speak at, I think, two NRBs, the National Religious Broadcasters, and in the film section. And, you know, we do need folks that are listening right now to support these independent movies because, you know, as Kevin just alluded to, we've got so much hate and destruction with these looting rioters, you know, butchering their way through neighborhoods. And, you know, you're trying to, as you just said, you know, make people think and laugh and cry and give them a positive message to escape this. Well, we have a world of Marvel Avengers, exactly. And don't they spend almost $100 million just to promote these trailers, I'm sure. Their marketing budgets are out of this world. So, you know, with Hollywood's influence, you know, you got these sick, disgusting perverts. You know, we heard all about Jeffrey Epstein and cuties and and Netflix is like, you know, a a culture that is now normalizing pedophilia. Like, do you just shake your head some days in this Hollywood culture that you've been immersed in for so many years, Kevin? Yeah, it's kind of shocking to me, really, what's going on. I mean, when Let There Be Light opened, that was the last movie I directed. It was in theaters a couple of years ago. It did very well. I hope I hope your listeners watch, look at Let There Be Light. Um, by the way, they can go to kevinsorbo.net at any time to get information on me. kevinsorbo.net. They can go to the merchandise section. I can sign or autograph my books or the DVDs and things. But Let There Be Light opened so well that I got a call from Netflix. And they said, hey, we want to talk to you. So I went at this when I was still in L.A. a couple of years ago. So I went in their offices there, and um, I had three meetings with them in person at 
they're beautiful offices in, in Hollywood. And they said, you seem to have a niche in this world of, uh, you know, the inspirational, and we want to open an uh, inspirational division here at Netflix. And I said, well, great. I've got the products. You know, I got movies that are family friendly. So we had, like I said, those three meetings and phone calls that followed. I sent them a number of wonderful scripts uh, and nothing happened. I don't know if it was his lip service or what it was. I found it kind of really weird. I said, you know, I told him, I said, why are you afraid of, you know, there's 80 million homes out there that want family-friendly things? It doesn't have to necessarily be faith-based. It just has to be something you can watch with your eight-year-old kid, you know? Right. And, um, we mentioned Hercules and Andromeda earlier. Well, that's what I used to get stopped for all the time. Well, 80% of the time now I get stopped because of God's not dead. What if? Let there be light. Soul surfer. People say, please make more movies like that. So that's what I'm trying to do. And that's, but we need people to support these movies. Otherwise, they'll die. These theaters don't care what they're showing. They just want to make sure they sell their Coca-Cola and popcorn. That's where they make their big money. So if we don't fill up those seats, Hollywood's going to fill it up with their blockbusters. And as you said, they'll spend $100, $150 million promoting these things. And they have all the power to get their message out there. They control the culture. So, um, you know, we're just trying to fight back in a way that shows, hey, you know, here's some good movies with good messages. There's nothing wrong with that. And as I told you, many pe people want this. So I don't, I don't understand why Hollywood is moving away from that. I'm not saying, okay, stop making the movies you want to make. Because, uh, you know, it's like, hey, freedom of speech. But at the same time, why don't we put out things that uh, families want to see as well? Why are we just kind of going down one road? It's really weird to me. I mean, it's an industry that screams for tolerance and freedom of speech, but those are all one-way streets with these guys. Wow, well said, well said. And you said so much there because look at the message, though, that Hollywood promulgates all the time. It's a steady diet of violence and rage. And, you know, look at some of these titles here. Number one on Netflix, Lucifer. I mean, that, that tells you where we're at. I mean, all these dark themes... You know, I don't understand, like you just said, why Hollywood pushes back. I mean, you even had, really, I think the pilot topped the chart, and yet ABC didn't pick up a show, go figure that you were, I think it was a Bobby Cannon or something, and I, I thought, interesting, these pilots, we live in a culture where we just can't get anything on the big screen, too. Well, you hit something that's really a source pot with me all these years later. Um, when Andromeda finished in 2005, I, I helped uh, create a pilot along with my uh, old manager at the time, and uh, we got Barry Kemp to write it. We sold it to ABC and on a 10-page outline, and we hired Barry Kemp, who's a very famous oh, Newhart. Uh, successful writer. Producer. Yeah, he did Newhart. He did um, Coach with Craig T. Nelson, and he loved it, and it was really dealing with a, a football player at the end of his career in the NFL. I was playing Bobby Cannon. I was a football guy that now he's 42 years old. Had a long career like Tom Brady has had, but on NFL draft day, they draft a young stud quarterback out of Texas A&M, and then I realized, oh my gosh, my days are numbered here, you know, and it kind of hits them because he still it's sort of a it was a, sort of a series across between Coach and Cheers. They created twenty, I think it was twenty seven or twenty eight pilots that year back in two thousand five, and we tested number one in all eight cities they brought it to, and yet they still didn't pick us up, which is just shocking to me. Why would you spend the time and money doing this and not pick it up? But you know, behind the scenes and, and networks, people have no idea. There's all, you know, there's there's egos, there's insecurities, there's jealousies, there's deals made. I mean, okay, I, I I didn't put your show in last year, so I promise, no matter what you do, I'll put your next show in. I mean, they do these deals. It's all just a little it's a little boys game, you know. It's boys town still. So I I was shocked, and I thought sure they'd bring mine back but they only picked up six shows for that season all six of them failed in the first half year they wow. never went nothing went any further with that uh, the guy that was running the studio at the time i, I kept saying when we we're filming he'd come down on the set you know while we were rehearsing and i'm going man what's wrong with this dude i think he hates me he goes no no the guy's bipolar 
and he's on all kinds of medication. I go, oh. that's what you want. You want, a, you want a bipolar guy running your television comedy division. That makes perfect <laughs> sense to me. So, you know, but um, uh, people go online. I think they can find it. Bobby Cannon. I think there's uh, sort of an, uh, you know, rough cut final version of it, but it's very funny. Kate Walsh is in it. Um, she's fantastic. And there, Rocky Carroll's in it. Kate Walsh went on to do a uh, private practice for like six, seven years after that got canceled. And, and uh, Rocky Carroll's been on the last like dozen years of NCIS, I think. And it, we just had a wonderful, wonderful cast. And it's still to this day, it just shocks me that wasn't picked up. That would have been an eight-year hit for them. But, you know, they're not always right. And they're wrong a lot. And people behind the scenes, I mean, people outside of Hollywood have no idea how many shows that get made never get shown because of uh, some politics within the industry. Wow, you brought up so many good points. And I'm still thinking, wow, a combination of Coach and Cheers? That show is something I think I would really enjoy. I mean, look at Last Man Standing. It's amazing how these conservative-based shows like Last Man Standing and even Roseanne, so much controversy with these mainstream network so it doesn't matter if they do good with the people they're not going to have any of that it seems like and you mentioned John Ratzenberger you did another show with him and who doesn't love Cliff Clavin right on an absolutely true story miracle in East Texas the awards that won is off the charts talk about that John is great in it. Lou Gossett Jr. is in it. Tyler Maine's in it. People know Tyler Maine as um, Sabretooth in the X-Men movies. But for, for bigger fans of it, he's a six foot nine WWF wrestler that's retired now. But he, yeah. So he was awesome, awesome to work with. My wife's in it. She does a great job. It's written by the great Dan Gordon. Dan um, uh, did, did the rewrite on my wife's Let There Be Light. It's a wonderful movie. It's a, it's, we had 10 different film festivals before we were going to release it, and COVID killed the chance of releasing it when we wanted to this past summer. But uh, we won everything from best romantic comedy to best judge's favorite to uh, best faith film, audience favorite. It's a wonderful true story set in 1930 about these two con men that are played by myself and John Ratzenberger that would woo widows out of their money on fake oil wells. And they would sell 500% of the shares, so they're already breaking the law more and more ways than one. And then they would declare a dry hole and move on to the next town. And uh, all the music is pre-1930. I get to drive around in 1928 car, the whole movie, which is <laughs> awesome. And uh, we had one. Of, there's only one of two trains in all of North America. One happens to be there. We shot in Calgary, by the way. And one's up there in Calgary. And uh, there's only two working trains left in all of North America that were pre-1930. And that's one of the trains. So we got to use that in the movie as well, which was pretty cool. Oh, wow. So the same neck of the wood that Clint Eastwood did Unforgiven in up in the big um, big whiskey. And The Revenant, I think, was... We, um, we, shot, at the same, we shot at the same ranch. There's a 3,000-acre oh. working ranch up there outside of the city. Because people said, how can you shoot East Texas movie in Calgary? Like, <laughs> when I was speaking at a Texas event, they're all upset we didn't shoot in Texas. And I said, well, number one, Canada has a better tax credit, and the American <laughs> dollar is still a little bit stronger. So we get a double whammy in making the movie look bigger with a bigger budget, you know, because it looks like a $10 million movie. It really does. Wow. And it's just a wonderful movie. And we shot at the same location where Revenant was shot, where um, Unforgiven was shot, where Lonesome Dove was shot. So I said, yeah, if you're looking, you look east, yeah, you're looking at downtown Calgary, that ain't going to work. And you see the mountains. But if you look west, it looks like Texas, trust me. Yeah. I'll tell you, it's beautiful country. I'm actually here right now in Alberta, and uh, it is beautiful. Um, listen, I remember years ago reading, I think it was one of your memoirs. I want to say like at least 10 years ago, I remember from this book about you having a near-death experience. Talk a little bit about that for the folks. 
Yeah, it was uh, end of season five on Hercules. We had, like I said, we had seven seasons, and I was going to be heading back to America to do um, pro- uh, promotional work in my first big budget movie. I shot a movie called Call the Conqueror. Call was the father in the prequel to the movie of Conan the Barbarian that Arnold Schwarzenegger uh, starred in. And then I was going to start another big budget movie for Universal before going down to uh, uh, New Zealand again to shoot season six. I shot all of Hercules down in New Zealand. And so I was having problems with my left arm and shoulders just killing me. And I, I, but I was, you know, my ego said I could do all my own stunts and I enjoyed doing all my own stunts. It was just fun, you know. <laughs> and I got back to the States and the arm just kept bugging me and bugging me more and more. And I went to see my uh, doctor and he found a lump way up my left subclavicle, way up my shoulder. And he said he wanted to get a biopsy on that. But before he did the biopsy, I went to see my chiropractor. Now, in eight years of seeing this guy, he's never cracked my neck, okay? And I'm laying on the table. I heard a voice say, don't let him crack your neck over and over again, which I thought was so weird because in eight years, he's never cracked my neck because he knows I don't like my neck cracked. So while I'm arguing with his voice in my head, he cracks my neck. Well, that bump ended up being an aneurysm that had been spitting a bunch of blood clots down into my left arm over you know, a long period of time. Uh. And uh, that, that crack from left to right forced three clots into my brain, and I suffered three strokes. Uh. And um, obviously, I could have been, you know, I could have died instantly. I could have been, you know, paralyzed my left side or whatever the rest of my life in a wheelchair. If you want to call lucky, I guess, you know, two of them went to my balance center, one went to my vision. And I still have a 10% loss of vision in both eyes, but it was worse than that at the time it slowly has been coming back but i spent um, the next four months learning how to walk and balance myself again which was tough on my ego because here's a guy as ripped up and in good a shape as i was back then in the 1990s to a guy that couldn't even stand up so it took three years to fully recover and i did finally write a book that my wife badgered me to write um and um it's been a godsend because it's opened up a whole different avenue for me in terms of speaking engagement and it's called True Strength, My Journey from Hercules to Mere Mortal and How Nearly Dying Saved My Life. And I, initially, it was a bunch of just going to bookstores and signing and reading a chapter or two. And then it became talking to uh, doctors and nurses and medical communities. And then they found out where I stood as a Christian and for uh, things like this. And so I, I speak now on, on pro-life. I speak on uh, Christian education. I speak on uh, medical. I speak on motivational things. So it's really opened a whole new door for me in terms of uh, the things I've been doing. So once again, if people want to autograph a copy of that book, they can go to kevinsarbo.net. And my wife and I just did a follow-up book that just came out this year called True Faith, which is the follow-up to True Strength. So... Um, yeah, doing things in a world I thought I'd never be doing. I don't fancy myself an author anyway, but people really seem to enjoy the book because once again, it's about, you know, those roadblocks we're going to hit in our lives. And how do you react to that roadblock? You blame God, family, friends. Reality is you got to look in the mirror. There's the problem. Okay. It happened to you. What are you going to do about it? You're going to whine and complain or are you going to, you know, say, okay, I'm going to fight this thing. And that's what I did. Well, you're truly a Herculean when it comes to a different fight because you're a conservative Christian in the belly of the beast. You know, I mean, you are in Florida now and I, and I lived in California for a year and that was good enough for me, but you are so refreshing for people because you have the background that you do. And by the way, I love your, um, I'm linking your Twitter feed and I mean, your tweets are amazing. You, you don't care. Like you just jump in there. And I think that's what people find really refreshing about you, Kevin, is you're willing to fight back. You're not sitting on the sideline being silent that's a really that's got to be hard though amongst all these jackals and hyenas these these liberal lefties it's got i mean you got two strikes against you christian and conservative well that's like a double leper in hollywood but that's okay (laughs) so it's um but you know i i I post a lot yeah i do and i but i post stuff that's uh hopefully entertaining and funny 
Um, and I also post stuff that's true. And people don't like the truth, which is amazing. They, they'd rather be fed the lies that, uh, you know, the government loves to feed everybody. And, you know, it's, it's amazing to me. I, I post stuff that's actually factual. And that really offends people, which is shocking to me. But, you know, and I got tr- some trolls out there. It doesn't matter what I post. They say, they ban them, ban them. So I've been shadow banned. I've been shut down. And, uh, you know, you get a hold of Twitter and Facebook and go, why did, he, why did this get taken away? So it's like, I mean, it is kind of funny that it's, uh, it's turning into such a wicked one-way street right now. But, uh, you know, if we don't keep fighting, we're going to lose the battle, right? But what I love about all of this, even though it seems circus ridiculous and we're living in a COVID, I call it just mask lunacy, mask madness. I think it goes back to the climate when, you know, you asked a prolific question, you know, are they trying to control the climate or you? This is really comes down to all about control and turning our country into a socialist hellhole. Well, you know, Venezuela, how's that working out? It's really frightening how close we are, though, isn't it? Well, it's crazy. I mean, Ronald Reagan said we're just one generation of losing all of our freedom. And he wasn't wrong. And we're seeing that now in America big time. This, you know, fear is an amazing weapon. And that's what they're using right now with COVID. And look, I look at what the CDC reports are and what the World Health Organization, who just came out and said, this is nothing worse than a bad flu season. Yeah. And they showed the numbers, the flu season of deaths per million or thousand or whatever it was. It was nothing worse than that. And they're using it as a way to control people's life and destroy the world's economy. It's unbelievable to me. Why is a mom and pop grocery store not essential? But the big grocery stores, those are essential. Those are okay. I mean, this is control. It's fear. It's all this kind of stuff. And I call them mask holes. Pardon my French, but I'm getting tired of wearing these stupid masks. When <laughs> I've got doctor friends about to keep their mouths shut. They said, we'll lose our jobs if we would be honest about this. I mean, you got Fauci saying earlier in this thing that, oh, you don't need to wear masks. And now this whole thing is wear a mask, wear a mask. And you see these guys take it off all the time. The CDC says, if you can't keep six feet apart, because am- amazingly, I guess this virus stops at five feet, 11 inches. But anyway, <laughs> if you can't keep six feet apart, then you should wear a mask. So I'm going, okay. So if, if I don't want to wear a mask and you wear a mask and we stay six feet apart or more, then, I mean, gosh, you're double covered here, okay? I think people should wear a mask if they want. And if they don't want to wear a mask, don't wear a mask. I think this is absolutely insane we're doing. We're making three-year-old kids wear masks. We're making these young children walk around in masks. We're breathing our own CO2. This is so bad. For, we're going to have bigger people and bigger problems a year, two, three years from now from people that are wearing these masks six to ten hours a day. It's absolutely insane, and it's sad to see this going on. But this is the battle we got going right now, and people got to start fighting back because, trust me, to me, this is a trial for bigger and worse things. And the reality is, if you look at the numbers and look at the real numbers, okay, I'm not poo-pooing this, this uh, virus. It certainly is contagious. But it's the vast majority of the people are over 80 years old, and they already have pre-existing conditions. You have very few people. The CDC came out a couple of weeks ago saying of the 200,000 they're saying has died in America alone, that's probably inflated by more than tenfold. They think it's maybe more like 10 to 20,000 have actually died wow. from the virus. The rest of them died because they had pre-existing conditions, and they were, they, were, they were old. It's horrible. I'm not saying it's a good thing. I'm not trying to, like, diminish this. But to make us all walk around like we're in, you know, walking deadland and zombies to each other, it's crazy. Yeah, AMC's Walking Dead's got nothing on this clown show because, as you just said, and, you know, it's funny, Fauci said 
you know, hydroxychloroquine was good a couple of years ago. And now all of a sudden, you know, it's just everything is just such a narrative that's being spoon fed, you know, and also, as you mentioned, this is really important that when you look at how it decreases oxygen intake and toxin inhalation, it shuts down your immune system, increases virus risk. But Bill Gates wants to vaccinate, you know, the planet, Mr. You know, I have a penchant for vaccinating the world. You know, there's just a lot wrong with this. And I think what it really comes down to, people got to start fighting back, pushing back. What did Netflix lose about? I mean, we need to cancel some of these Hollywood big budget films too, because all they do is promote an endless steady diet of stuff that we don't want our children. I mean, it's bad enough our children are being taught that we came from monkeys in school and you don't even want to know what they're teaching. Little oral sex was in one of the grade one curriculum. I mean, this it's just mind numbing that our kids are getting a steady diet of this horrible, godless socialist education. 78 genders. Who would have ever believed we're living in this insanity? And that's why it's so important for people to get behind and back independent. Now, word of mouth goes a long ways, doesn't it? Yeah, I mean, that's how, these, that's how God, Not, God Not Dead became so big. But they had a brilliant campaign at the end of that movie. Uh, what Pureflex put in there when we had Willie Robertson at the end of the movie saying, hey, take out your phones right now and text everyone you know, God's Not Dead. That became free advertising. People's phones all over the, everywhere were lighting up. What's this God's not dead thing? So it was like free advertising for them. And that just perpetuated it. You know, they were hoping they would make $10 million on the theatrical run of the movie. It made 11 million opening weekend. Wow. Um, the guy that financed this movie it was the first time he's ever been involved with movies. And I told him, I said, Troy, you have no idea what just happened with an independent movie like this. You know, this, this doesn't happen for independent movies. Independent movies make money. They're just not making the $2 billion that a, that a um, Avengers movie make. But people don't realize that Avengers, they got to make $800 million to break even. But, you know, they still make $1.2 billion profit, so it's a good profit. But here's a movie that made 70 times its original investment. That's why I say I find it so difficult to raise money for the movies I do, because I do movies in a 3 to $4 million range, and we do great movies. That sounds like a lot of money, but 3 to $4 million, that's catering on Pirates of the Caribbean, you know? So why can't these people that stop me, and I, play, I, play, I, must, I do a lot of celebrity golf events, and I play with very wealthy guys that are Christian, conservatives, and I'm like going... You know, a $3 million check to you is like a $3,000 check to me. Why is it that say that they, you know, keep making moves what you're doing? Why are they not helping support getting these movies made? Because I've got the scripts. And other people have scripts like this, too, that do, you know, movies that are fa got family value. And yet the hardest part for us little indies, and the funny thing is, a 3 or $4 million investment in a good movie, like the ones I got, they'll get their money back, plus interest. I mean, they'll get their money back. And it's a risky business to begin with. When you start getting in that 10 to 20, 30 million dollar range where it really becomes risky. But, uh, you know, we do, I do movies that are in a reasonable range and yet it's so hard. But thank God, uh, every once in a while, I just meet somebody that happens. And it just happened again in the last couple of months where I met a guy that said, here you go. And he just wrote a check for my next movie. So I'm, I'm prepping right now to do the next Left Behind movie. Oh, wow. Very interesting. Well, in the last part of the show, because I know you have limited time, Kevin, talk about some of your upcoming projects and just take the time for whatever you feel is important in this last part of the show. The mic is yours, Kevin. Well, I, we mentioned earlier what I got coming out is uh, my, the movie that's near and dear to me because I directed it. That's the uh, Miracle in East Texas movie. It won't be out the next year now. 
I have another one called One Nation of God. It's about bringing that praise back into our Pledge of Allegiance here in America. It's a, a high school drama dealing in a debate class. It's pretty interesting. It's pretty cool. Another one is The uh, uh, the Mustard Seed. I think they're changing the title of The Girl Who Believe in Miracles. It's about a little girl that gets sick, but she's uh, able to have uh, conversations with Jesus, and she's able to perform these small miracles, and it's pretty cool. I've got a wonderful documentary coming out November 19th in the Fathom events. I hope it's up there in Canada. If it's not, it certainly will be streaming on DVD right after that. But I think we're on 700 screens here in America, November 19th. Um, they can go to againstthetide.movie. That's againstthetide.movie. I did three weeks in Oxford, England, and two weeks in Israel with John Lennox. He's a retired math professor. He's an apologist. He's debated all the great atheists of the world like Dawkins and Hitchens and just a very fascinating man. And for me to be able to hang out in Oxford for three weeks in that beautiful, you know, university-filled city and then go down to Israel and walk in the footsteps of Jesus for two weeks was really pretty incredible. And, um, I've got another one called Before the Wrath, which is out right now. Please go to beforetherath.com. Before the Wrath is streaming on Amazon. It is the number one Christian movie out there. It's a documentary dealing with the book of Revelation. I narrate it, and it's amazing. And I'm going to do another documentary with these same guys. Brent Miller is the guy behind it. Next year, we're doing it in the spring. It's on the uh, About the Disciples, which is going to be pretty fascinating, I think. And I'll be up in... Uh, Kelowna, up in your neck of the woods, up there in British Columbia, shooting two movies back-to-back. One's an action comedy, and the other one's a a little bit of a psychological thriller. And I'm looking forward to do uh, both those movies up there. I'll probably be up there for, gosh, I would imagine, up there for at least two to three months sometime next year. So staying busy. i got a lot of stuff in the fires, and then I've got other wonderful scripts. Oh, and I just finished eight episodes. I did a pilot of a half-hour comedy about two years ago, and I forgot about it. I figured they weren't interested. Well, they called me up here earlier this summer, and we spent six weeks filming in California, cramming in eight episodes. It's called The Pot Wins, P-O-T-W-I-N-S, Pot Wins. It's like a last man standing Tim Allen's latest series meets uh, Family Ties. So it's called The Pot Wins. It'll be on TV next winter. So, um, yeah, I guess when I start babbling away, I, I got a lot of stuff on the fires right now. You certainly do. Well, we need more guys like you, more principled filmmakers. And I think you said this best. You can weave the moral fabric back into our culture. We are so desperate for that right now in a world in turmoil, Kevin. And I want to just thank you so much. I mean, you have had such a positive influence worldwide. You stand for righteousness. And I think that's amazing that you're shouting truth from the rooftops in a world where a lot of Christians for far too long, they've retreated in the corner, hidden from the culture. They're running when confronted. And I just personally want to say I'm a huge fan, really admire you as a person. And I just want to say thank you for everything you do. I really appreciate it. And very quickly in the last part of the show, Kevin, once again, give out your information for the people listening on the podcast how they can go to your website and check out all the stuff we've talked about today. People can get a hold of me at kevinsorbo.net. My Twitter feed is at ksorbs, K-S-O-R-B-S, ksorbs. All my buddies call me Sorbs. And then for my Facebook posting, I go to the uh, Kevin Sorbo official Facebook page because there's people pretending to be me, and of course they want to post stuff that uh, I wouldn't post at all. <laughs> and so some people get some people get mad at me and for something I don't even know about. Uh, yeah, so please go check out those links and, and check those things out and uh, find me some investors. I'm sure we need investors to really fight this cultural battle we have going on, guys. And I've got the scripts. I, I know what I'm doing. I've got crews I can shoot anywhere in the world. I'm more than happy to come back up to Canada again to shoot up there. And uh, I'm directing more and more now. I started directing back in my Hercules years, but acting is still my number one passion. But I do enjoy uh, directing as well. 
Any trillionaires out there, give Kevin a call today. (laughs) (laughs) Oh, well, listen, I've got the information up on your screen, folks. Do check out all Kevin's stuff. And I'm really excited about what you've got on the horizon. Thank you so much for everything you do. And thank you for coming on the show today. My pleasure. We'll do it down the road when these other movies come out next year. Sounds really good, Kevin. Thank you. Folks, that was Kevin Sorbo, Hollywood actor, producer, independent filmmaker, and so much more. Again, his information is kevinsorbo.net. His information's linked below and is up on your screen. Go check out some of the projects he talked about earlier today. Any investors out there that want to get in contact with Kevin, reach out to him. And let's support independent filmmakers that bring good, principled messages in this time of so much of this Hollywood culture that we have. So important. Hey, PureFlix is also a great alternative to, of course, Netflix And hey, speaking of Alberta, I'm going to be in Edmonton, Alberta, Canada. Sheila Zelensky Ministries is sponsoring Stand and Roar. It is a protest of unrighteousness on the steps of the Alberta legislature. We're meeting at high noon on Halloween, as most of you know it, October 31st. We're taking that devilish day over, and we are going to pray for this nation. I truly believe this is going to be one of the most powerful events. Come out and meet like-minded Christians. Get in your vehicle and get to this event, folks. You know what? We're all busy, but let's make this a priority because Christians in Canada, it's time to stand and roar. Come out and pray with us. We're going to be praying, worshiping together, doing powerful repentance, prayer, spiritual warfare, powerful, powerful men and women of God are going to come together. And I don't want you to miss it. Come out and see me, if anything. Any questions, you can go to standandroar.com, all one word, or you can simply go to SheilaZelinsky.com. Thanks so much for listening to the program today. Good night, and God bless you.